Hey, you're listening to Ghost Notes, the podcast that looks at music inside and out. I'm Noah, also known as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey. I'm a music theorist and I make 12-tone. And today we're talking about... What are we talking about, Noah? We're talking about um, auteur theory, uh, I guess, and how it applies to music. For those of you who aren't really familiar with what auteur theory is, uh, it's a theory that came about kind of uh, with a lot of... It came about from film actually and it's the idea that there are these kind of singular artists often they're people who have a kind of distinct style distinct voice distinct control over their art and auteur theory often kind of kind of looks at these singular people and says these are the forces that that shift music film or whatever medium these are the people that single-handedly reinvent a genre or or bring music to the masses, or things like that. Kind of these unflappable forces of pure creativity. Yes, yeah, so it's sort of like in the in the history world, what's often called the great man theory, where basically history is a series of great individuals, which, you know, in European traditional history is often presented as men, and then each of them sort of changes the course, and like they have the singular vision and they make it happen, and there's not really much consideration for the culture around them and the things that shape their vision and shape the reaction to their vision. Absolutely, yeah. And I think by that same measure, another thing that's often overlooked is the people that help this person do something, because absolutely nobody does anything on their own. People are always, always surrounded by... In, in the case of music, producers, bandmates, even often like critics will help push artists. There's there's a whole ecosystem that pushes change. And audience, too. I think like one, one of the examples that stands out to me is The Wall, right? Like, oh, The Wall was explicitly written because of Roger Waters' experience with his audience as Pink Floyd, as... A member of Pink Floyd. He wasn't the only one I know, uh, but you should tell that to Roger Waters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll just I'll call him up. The art was explicitly shaped in that case by his experience with the audience, by his experience having an audience, and having the sort of audience in that sort of culture that reacts to his sort of music in a specific way. And if he'd had the sort of like classical audience that has these rules of you don't applaud, you just sit there and listen to the music and you let it happen. And you just like sit quietly and in, like experience the work, the wall wouldn't have happened. I think that's a really good point because I think the wall is is kind of almost like your archetypal like take on like rock music auteurship. The wall is this opus that is very distinctly Roger Waters and really I mean, there's still the other band members still bring a lot, but in the common vision, it's kind of Roger Waters driving this creation for for those who are unfamiliar with the story do you want to explain a little how how the crowd really kind of inspired the wall i mean you're probably more better equipped to do that than i am but my my basic understanding is that it sort of came from largely a a disillusionment that he was feeling with this sort of like celebrity worship that came along with being a rock star in the 70s it was the 70s right am i yeah, end of the seventies. The Wall came out in seventy nine. Yeah, that's. I, I just. I never remember which line these things fall on. My. I have this. Remember this story of him like like seeing fans like crawling onto the stage and like, climbing onto the stage while he was trying to perform, and he like was found that really distressing and disruptive. And and the the Wall was sort of his way of putting into words or putting into music the isolation that he felt from. His celebrity. But you again, you're more equipped to tell this story than I am. So if you want to take over. In my memory, I think one of the big catalysts of this was actually specifically Roger Waters spat on a fan. And then he kind of looked back on himself afterwards and was like, why did I do that? What what has made me so dissociated from these people? How am I able to kind of dehumanize the fans? And and exactly like you said, it kind of it led into this whole this whole exploration of what being a rock star is. And I think there's a lot of really, really, actually, I think this is a good a good kind of starting point to dig into this because I think there's a lot of works that are very distinctly informed by the experience of the fans. Another work that I would say is pretty similar thematically to The Wall is Tommy by The Who. 
and Tommy is very much kind of about I mean it's it's a weird freaking story. It takes some <laughs> weird turns, but but it's at, at the end of the day it's very much about kind of uh this figure that's gone through a lot of trauma, but then in the last act he becomes this deified rock star character and then starts to abuse his fans. Maybe we don't like to think it, but I th- I think the way that we often talk about music is we kind of look at these musicians as if they're these these deified gods that just hand down music to us to improve our lives and for us to listen to when in reality it's always an ebb and flow and there's always dialogue and interchange between the audience and the artist and between the culture and the artist too i think you know like one great example of that is political music like if you think of like what's going on like great songs on that album in general but like what's going on really couldn't have been written 50 years earlier, like setting aside the style, setting aside like stylistic concerns or whatever, the message of what's going on was so tied to its time and so, you know, generalizable from that, but inspired by the experiences that Marvin Gaye had and the world around him as he wrote that music. And I think this is something that's kind of missing with our idea of kind of auteur theory. And I think a big, a big way that this plays in is when you look at people and you say like oh what's your dream rock and roll band and like that's a that's a fun thing to play and people will be like oh well like Jimi Hendrix on guitar and John Bonham on drums and Cliff Burton on bass or something like that that sounds like a great band the thing is i think that it wouldn't actually be as good as we think it would be yeah. because all of these people are products of their time like i'm sure if Marvin Gaye was born in 1993 or whatever, he would be a fantastic artist right now, but he would not be M- Marvin Gaye, and maybe he wouldn't even be a fantastic artist right now. It's it's impossible to really tell, but but what's going on is a great example because that whole the whole shift in Marvin Gaye's career and and as a result, Marvin Gaye and and I think this is where people like get the auteur theory from Marvin Gaye's what's going on really did shift the way that Motown worked because it allowed for Stevie Wonder's like talking book and onwards to songs in the key of life. And it allowed for all of these kind of uh, socially forward thinking, a high concept uh, albums. But all of these things, I, I, I genuinely believe that no disrespect to Marvin Gaye. No. I, I love Marvin Gaye. But had Marvin Gaye never been born, had he not made What's Going On, someone else was going to make a Motown or maybe it would have been Stax or some R&B record that was questioning the Vietnam War and like the racial divide in America because that was the culture that was happening. And it just so happened that Marvin Gaye was part of that culture. I think if you pluck Marvin Gaye out, what you have is you have Stevie Wonder doing an album like that that changes yeah. things, or uh, The Temptations. I mean, all of these people that kind of followed, I think one of them would have stepped up and filled that void. I mean, not to correct you, but I'm pretty sure everyone else was pretty cool with the Vietnam War around then, so I don't know what you're talking Famously about. Famously yeah. so. <laughs> Famously popular war. I have this rule that I call the rule of 19s, where basically anything that's wrong with modern musical discourse you can probably trace back to either the 19th century or the 1970s. And I, to, to sort of go back to the, because we've been talking sort of about the 70s and that those sorts of eras, which obviously, you know, some of it's out in the late 60s, early 80s, whatever. It's still the 70s. I don't care. But like, if you go back to like, like Beethoven is sort of the, the classical, I say classic, classic example in classical music. Like you go back and you look at him as this titanic figure of our view of early 19th century music. And it's true, he had some really revolutionary ideas about what music could be, but it's also true that he existed in a time that was where music was fundamentally changing, right? Like I tried to get into this in my Canon video where it wasn't so much that Beethoven had ideas that no one had ever had before, it was that the audience was changing in large part because of the wave of sort of democracy spreading across Europe and the decline of aristocratic power after the French Revolution that led to a fundamentally different audience that Beethoven was set up to appeal to in a way that many of his predecessors weren't. And so you look at this and be like, he shepherded the change from the classical period to the romantic period 
But really, that change was happening. Like he's he's the name that we attach to that change. But that tectonic shift was happening no matter what. If Beethoven had never been born, someone else would have been that guy. And someone else would have been the first person to really, truly become that sort of like compositional rock star that he was. And they would have wound up with their name on a million examples in every music theory textbook. Yeah. And and I think I think kind of with the with the broader dialogue that's happening right now in our understandings of classical music and stuff like that, I think Beethoven is a really interesting example because I don't I don't think I don't want to take away from the genius that Beethoven was because he absolutely was like like no doubt there and he should be celebrated but I think we need to reframe and and it kind of plays into um these these ideas that we have of certain musics being hierarchically better than others and often there's some uncomfortable stuff in there. Hello, oh, yeah. Schenker. <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons why it's important to sometimes take a step back from this deification of these artists. Because, l- like you said, at the end of the day, it was the social circumstances around Beethoven that led to his rise. I think that is always the case yeah. with most things, but especially with art. Art is always either implicitly or explicitly commenting on the social and historical moment that it is in because of that reality. I think it's hard to say this, uh, to say all of this with a channel where I frequently, frequently talk about how individuals helped shape music history, but I think they don't play quite the same role that that my channel would lead people to believe. I think that's an important distinction because... I think what you and I are both saying is that they don't play the sort of role we talk about them as having, but that doesn't mean they don't play a role, right? Yes. To go back to what's going on, like someone else could have made the album that changed Motown and like took a stand against Vietnam and whatever, but they wouldn't have made what's going on. Yes. It wouldn't have been that album if it wasn't Marvin Gaye. And that what specifically that was will have an impact downstream. And so you can still attribute a level of impact and influence to these artists without decontextualizing them and stripping them of the sort of surrounding cultural context. Although the academic pedant in me does need to point out that this line gets a bit messier once we start talking about like extreme outsider art, like the shags. This is true. At that point, you sort of get like, are they really commenting on a culture or are they commenting on their personal circumstances in a way that really most other music doesn't relate to? I would think with the shags, though, even with something as outside as the shags or something as kind of like vividly creative as Captain Beefheart or things like this, they are all even the shags are doing kind of their imitation of what was going on in music at the time. Like the shags were clearly influenced by kind of rock and roll, you know? And there's also like even just the instruments they played. There's a reason they were playing guitars, not sitars, you know? Exactly. I don't think auteur theory specifies that there can't be these influences, but I think in our modern discourse, we really like building these narratives because at the end of the day, they're really good stories. It's it's a great story that there was no such thing as jazz, and then Buddy Bolden came along, and suddenly there was jazz. In my Buddy Bolden video, I tried to I tried to touch on this. I think Buddy Bolden is interesting because he lived at the turn of the century yeah. and was poor in New Orleans. There's basically nothing known about him. And so I actually think he provides a really good kind of figure to be this myth. And I think someone else like that is Robert Johnson. Yeah. We know basically nothing about Robert Johnson. And we project this idea that he kind of was the godfather of rock and roll. And... That's true in a way because a lot of people listened to Robert Johnson's albums and Robert Johnson was a, or I guess not albums, his recordings, and he was a very talented musician. But also Robert Johnson and Buddy Bolden especially, they're really interesting because they're kind of just the ones that were, I mean, Buddy Bolden wasn't recorded, but Robert Johnson is the one that was recorded. Buddy Bolden is the one that was memorized, like remembered by his peers. Recorded in brains. Yes, yes, exactly. And and I think that's something, especially with Robert Johnson, where it's like there were there were a whole lot of really, really talented 
blues guitarists doing pretty much the same stuff that Robert Johnson did at the time. Um, Sun House is yeah. obviously a big one. And then, I mean, there's Tommy Johnson, who was a, a little before Robert Johnson. And Robert Johnson probably got the the selling his soul for the devil with yep. a, a thing from and Blind Willie McTell and Blind Willie Johnson and all of these people who are all part of kind of Delta Blues. And I think when we talk about Robert Johnson, I think what we're actually talking about is every one of those people kind of Robert Johnson is becoming this amalgam of them. Yeah, he, he's, he was a historical figure, but he's also sort of an avatar for the entire movement because we have yes. so little actual historical like record left from a lot of that stuff. I think avatar is a great word for that. And and I think you can see it even in era, eras where we do actually have better historic documentation. Like even like when you think of the glam movement, David Bowie is the avatar for glam. Yeah. There is absolutely zero question about that. In fact, I think a lot of people like first wave glam, often people who aren't really into it, like completely forget in my mind, like T-Rex. David Bowie may have kind of created the glam visual aesthetic, but the sound of glam is so much bands like T-Rex and even even the visual aesthetic. David Bowie did do different things, but it's a pretty it's weird because I think we look back and we act as if it was this sudden break. There was a before David Bowie and then David Bowie entered the scene and suddenly everyone was playing around with gender and uh yeah. differing their outfits and things like that but in reality that's that's all just an extension of the hippie movement the sexual revolution happened and that's where david bowie got it from when you listen to david bowie's first album it's just like a psychedelic folk album he's it's it's honestly like like any of a dozen hippie records and what david bowie did with glam in a lot of ways was kind of a logical extrapolation of what was happening in the psychedelic movement to go back to a thing we talked about last episode, like Black Sabbath, when we talk about sort of where metal started. Yes. Like you can say like Black Sabbath invented metal and there are people who will say that, but like, and it's it's not clear who invented metal if it wasn't Black Sabbath is the thing. Like there's not another clear argument you can make, but it's also not clear that there isn't. It's also not like, it, it gets sort of murkier for like a couple of years before then of just like this stuff slowly sort of percolating up within the rock scene and becoming what Black Sabbath became. And they were sort of the ones who sort of crystallized it in a way that could be really recognizably different. But it's not like these ideas sort of came to Tony Iommi in a dream, right? They were a development of where some of the like rock in the UK was going already. And I think that's one of the reasons why we really like these narratives because they simplify things that are very muddy and complex. Because the reality is, the way that music shifts is very slowly and amorphously. And it, like, one person cuts a blues song with some heavy guitar distortion. Someone a generation later listens to that song and goes, Oh yeah, no, I really like that. I'm going to cut a couple songs with that. Someone else takes that amps get better and they make it louder someone uh i don't know iron butterfly gets really drunk and records inagata de vita <laughs> which is really loud and psychedelic and then black sabbath come along and they're like well this is really loud and dark also we like spooky things yeah and then suddenly at that point you kind of have all of these things but but again like you said they didn't it's hard to say that they specifically invented it it's less so they invented it and more they kind of made made it concrete in yeah. in the public's mind. If you take something like uh, the White Album, it's like often considered this hugely influential like work of art in sort of the way that it influenced music for decades. And you try and think of like, well, who who caused the White Album? How did the, who was responsible for that? And there's hundreds if not thousands of historical figures where if they hadn't been born the white album would be different yes like it may have still happened but it would be fundamentally different but it's so much easier to say it's john paul george and ringo i think the thing here is you've you've heard us kind of 
run in circles on this yeah. a little bit on a couple things. And I, I, I think you probably get the point by now. But where I want to go with with this is why is this a problem? Why why is this something that we should be aware of when we're looking um when, when we're kind of talking about music and looking at stuff? Because at the end of the day, it might seem like it's not that harmful to be like, I don't know, well, Black Sabbath was the only one that invented metal. And in a lot of cases, it's not that harmful. But a lot of the time, what happens is the people who are given this kind of auteur status tend to be the people who are most popular, who have the biggest public footprint. And part of that is the people that tend to have the biggest public footprint. There, there are differences. There are cases where this, this isn't the case, but often they're people who kind of, in one way or another, go along with the widely accepted cultural norms. And that can be good, but then it can also lead to things like generations of people thinking that Elvis invented rock and roll. Yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of that. The other thing for me, and we, we can come back to that. I don't mean to derail that. I do want to talk about that more. But before I forget, uh, the other thing for me is just like, it also puts an undue emphasis on certain roles within music making. Like, think of your favorite album. Mm. Or if you don't have a favorite album, think of an album you really like. Who mixed it? Who was in charge of that? Because they played a huge role in your experience. Yes. But odds are, for most of the people listening to this and for most people in the world, you couldn't name that person. You could name who sang on it. You could probably name the band. You could maybe name some of the other band members. But do you know the audio engineer? Do you know the producer? Do you know sort of any sort of collaborators in songwriting? Do you know the background singers? Do you know all of the other people who like even the people who just worked on the uh the album and this again goes back to sort of 19th century stuff where you, you think back to you know beethoven again it's one of the reasons i think this is kind of inevitable even if it's bad is that like if you try and think of everyone who was in the orchestra who played the premiere of beethoven's ninth you can't do it like that's too many people to credit with that and so it's so much easier to say this was beethoven even though, you know, the first violin probably played a pretty important role in your experience. If they'd been playing a half step flat, you would have noticed. And then there's also things in classical music like Beethoven probably wrote his songs knowing who was going to be in his orchestra yeah. and would write for certain members. The first violinist there, what they were good at, what they were bad at, what they enjoyed, those things probably played into how Beethoven wrote his symphonies. Hold on, it's partly because there's so many people, but also the other thing that makes this difficult, especially as time passes, is that Beethoven's writing, the, the composition itself, the score, is the only part of that musical experience that lasts, right? Yes. Like, I can't experience what it was like, what the contribution of the conductor was that night. Although I think the conductor might have been Beethoven, I'm not sure. But you know, for any given performance of Beethoven's Ninth in the 19th century, I can't experience what that would have been like without the with a different conductor i don't know i can read people's evaluations from the time but i can't have that experience was i can see what beethoven brought to that experience we sort of have this conception which i think is not unique to the european tradition but sort of pretty endemic to the european tradition is this idea of the musical work as separate from the musical experience this idea that like mm -hmm. any given performance of beethoven's ninth is a piece of music, right? If you go see it at the symphony, that's a piece of music. Yes. But it's also a piece of music in the abstract. Beethoven's Ninth is a piece of music separate from any of those performances. It's just the composition makes it music. Whereas, you know, just sitting around noodling on your violin may not be music separate from someone's composition. You may just be doing like scales or maybe doing a warm up or whatever, and people may or may not consider that music. That's an arguable question. I don't really... That's a whole different topic yeah. we don't need to get into right yeah, now. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a really, that's a very deep rabbit that's, hole that yeah. I'm not ready to fall down yet. <laughs> Let's just skirt that one for now. But uh, but you have these like, this idea that just the things that Beethoven wrote are music separate from, and then especially like with Beethoven specifically because of that glorification of him going deaf, which is a whole much, another much more complicated thing than we have time to get into, where it's sort of like the music existed even though he couldn't hear it, which again, romanticizing nonsense but it just like had had this idea that this was him expressing a music a piece of music and that was the work and that every performance of it was a realization of beethoven's genius as opposed to a contribution of 
an entire symphony's worth of people. I think that that's a really, really great example um, because it it silences a lot of voices um, who are like if you go if you go to the symphony and you see a Beethoven performed, your first response will probably be like, "Oh, Beethoven is so fantastic." And it's like, well, that experience had obviously like Beethoven was in that experience because yeah. he wrote it, but also he's a lot less in that than you think. Like a lot of that will come down to um I mean and and I think I think the next thing that you might note if you go to a classical performance is the conductor. Yeah. And there's kind of this this hierarchy of um of importance. Yeah, and then the soloist after that. Yes, ex- yeah, exactly. The first chairs and the soloists and um and and at the very bottom you have the guy that plays double bass. <laughs> um it's just disrespectful. But yeah, I think that that's a flawed image because it it seems to suggest that like 90% of the orchestra you could just swap people out and it would be the exact same, which is ludicrous when you think about it. And if you look at that hierarchy, if you look at the people at the top, like the composer, the conductor, the soloists, what's the connection between those? Is they're the people with non-redundant positions. They're the people who don't have someone else doing roughly the same thing. And again, that sort of comes back to this idea of the singular genius, right? Like if you have a single double bass player who's not quite as good as the rest, you probably won't notice, but like they can still bring something new to the table, but it's so much easier to see what that soloist is bringing to the table because no one else is doing their job. It's just them. And this, I think, contributes to a, like a common and really, really frustrating part of modern musical discourse, which is sort of complaining about modern pop songs having too many songwriters, you know? Yes. Like you have these like people will be like, oh, the, the, look at this song that like, John Lennon wrote by himself. And then look at this song that Beyonce did that had like 10 people credited as songwriters. And it's like, first of all, in a lot of sort of like, I know, for instance, in like Nashville musical culture, the, the general norm is like, if you're in the room when the song gets written, you get credited as a songwriter. It doesn't mean that yeah. these 10 people all contributed 10% of the song, but it's still, even then, it's this idea that if your job is redundant, then you're not necessary. And I say redundant, I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I just mean if someone else has the same basic function as what you're doing, then you aren't bringing anything to the table. And so you see these songs and it's just like, oh, well, look at this song that had like 10 people writing it. And it's like, yeah, they're all, they all did something. They all made the song better. Like, why are you mad? I think it's insidious how that is applied to contemporary pop music, especially as well, because like you never hear anyone saying, oh, well, Frank Sinatra didn't write my way. Like, yeah. And that's because Frank Sinatra wasn't a songwriter and that's OK. You don't need to be. And, and I think, again, this speaks to a lot of this comes from auteur theory where it's it seems like there's this idea that to be a great musician, you need to be a singular auteur. You need to be an incredible instrumentalist. You need to be a good lyricist. You need to be a good songwriter. You need to have a good voice. You need to do it all. And the reality is. That's just flat out not true. There are all of these different, like, like you could create kind of a, you could create a broad set of tools that in the modern world a musician might have. So you, a musician might be obviously like a good, against good instrumentalist. They might be a good improviser. They might not. They yeah. might not improvise solos at all. They might just play solos written for them. They might not even play solos. That's okay. They might not write their lyrics. That's fine. They might not do their production. That's fine. And and it creates like like we were talking earlier this hierarchical ranking of people are like, well well the best people are the people that do it all themselves. And it's like, why? If the song is good, I really don't care if it took an army of 400 people to make. Yeah, it puts so much like glorification on like the Trent Reznor's of the world who do a lot of different things really well. And it's like, and that's really impressive. I don't want to take that away from anyone. If you can do, if you can write the song, perform the song on all the instruments, mix the song, do, do all that work and produce it yourself. That's really cool. Like I, I'm like, I'm impressed, but if you can't, that's fine too. If you really want to specialize on one thing and just get really good at that thing and have someone else help you, like, you know, 
Elton John, for instance, to pick an example off the top of my head, Elton John didn't write his lyrics. Yes, that's a great example. He wrote, he was great at writing music. He was great at improvising. He was a great piano player. He was a great singer. Bernie Taupin wrote his lyrics because he was better at writing lyrics than Elton John was. And that resulted in a lot of great music that wouldn't have happened if we'd just been like, no, Elton, sorry, you got to write the words yourself. There's wider kind of ramifications of people saying, oh, well, well, a real musician writes all their lyrics or a real a real musician plays instruments. I can't count the number of times I've heard a lame joke about, oh, you just play the space bar. It's like, <laughs> l- like, no, like a an EDM producer composes brilliant pieces of music and often like I'm, I'm not even going to go on this tangent, but I'm going to mention something that co- could be cool to talk about in the future is what is an instrument? Oh, yeah. Like talking about samplers and I don't know, like, is the body an instrument? I, I think that that, that could yeah. be a good topic to do. I do think it is that is relevant to this point, though, in, in, in as much as sort of like one of the things we see with these sort of auteur theory approaches is that we tend to value composition or musical approaches and musical ideas that fit within the models defined by the people that we view as great, right? Yes. And this is sort of, again, to to use the EDM comparison, you see a lot of people like complaining that they're not playing an instrument, they're not writing notes. Or actually, a better example, I think, is rap, right? Yeah, I I was actually, I was actually about to bring it back down, back to our, uh, our our favorite music school graduate son <laughs> <laughs> but uh but yeah the the whole thing with rap is that like there's so many skills to it and so much technique and so much craft that doesn't look like traditional singing and so when you sort of approach it from the mindset of like well this is supposed to be traditional singing and it's failing then yeah it's rap is going to look really bad but if you approach it from the perspective of this is rap and it's trying to be like rap then it's going to be, it might be good or bad, depending on the rap. But like, and you're evaluating it on its own terms. And that's harder to do if you're stuck in this idea that like, the 1970s produced the greatest music the world has ever heard, or the 19th century produced the greatest music the world had ever heard. Those are the only two options, you know? Yes. <laughs> I, I and, and I think this actually brings me to a point that Adam Neely recently did a great video uh, oh, yeah. about kind of the, the racist origins of uh music theory but one thing that he mentioned that i think is interesting in what we're talking about right now is he talked about how in a lot of uh west african forms of music theory dance is considered a component of music yeah. which makes a lot of sense and if you approach something from that framework you can look at someone like Jimi hendrix and be like oh Jimi hendrix isn't even a real musician he doesn't dance look at what beyonce does on stage right yeah if you start from the idea that there is an objective best standard of music, then it's very easy to evaluate music from the lens of that objective standard, even when it's not applicable. And I think auteur theory often, I don't think it has to, but I think it often does railroad you into these kind of, yeah. into these ideas of what a musician is. Because if you look at who you consider to be an auteur and the greatest musician of all time or something like that, you're necessarily going to frame other music within within that framework, whether that person and it doesn't matter whether you think that person is John Coltrane or Skrillex like it's your 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 understanding of music is railroaded into um, into very narrow passages. And and there's a lot of far reaching ramifications of that i think it honestly is pretty much a necessary like not not an explicit component of auteur theory but i think the thing about auteur theory is that it basically demands a story right you need to have this sort of pathway that whatever medium you're looking at follows and if you don't have that pathway then everything gets messy and it's really hard to identify who the pillars were that shaped the path if there is no path, right? And so I'm not saying that like the only way to do auteur theory is to say like this is the best music. I think you can do it in much more complex and nuanced ways, but you still sort of need this clean narrative to drive you from one innovator to the next. This actually reminds me, this is a slight tangent, but um, my friend uh, Steve, who runs the YouTube channel, The Listener's Guide, which is a great channel. Check it out. He doesn't really upload anymore, but it's still the stuff he has there is very good. Uh, but he did a video about 
why Beethoven is the is considered the greatest. And part of that is, again, to go back to this sort of great man theory model where you have this progression of like one great composer passing down the, uh, the throne to the next one or the crown or whatever, whatever monarch symbol you prefer. You have this like, you know, Haydn to Mozart to Beethoven. And then music historians sort of ran into this like big problem of like, well, who is who is the next one? Who is the new king of classical music now that Beethoven's gone? And there's not a clear answer. Like that's sort of, again, because of the sort of decline in aristocratic power, that, that question got a lot harder to answer because culture around that time was really jumbled up and messy. And so it was hard to sort of pinpoint like this is the person who followed in Beethoven's footsteps and is the new great composer. And so, you know, you you or I might look at that and be like, well, maybe that means this model is gibberish. Maybe that means there's a fundamental flaw in the great man theory, which is the right way to look at it. Yep. But instead, <laughs> what like 19th century music historians did was they were like, well, clearly Beethoven was too good, right? There was no one who could take that throne from him. So clearly, greatest composer who ever lived, achievement unlocked, we're done now. I think another direction that people go with that, because I think you could clearly kind of do a similar thing, but trace like Elvis to the Beatles to maybe Led Zeppelin. And I think a reaction that modern audiences have is they can't find a singular auteur that matches a framework for auteurship that was created 50 years ago. And so they say, well, rock and roll is dead. Yeah. Well, well, there's no good music anymore. And it's like, well, no, maybe it's just your framework, the framework through which you view and understand what good music is, is no longer relevant yeah, and that's kind of why the 70s is that sort of big legendary era of rock and roll. It's because that's sort of where you can trace that path pretty cleanly. And, you you, you know, there there are multiple people at any given time, but you, you can sort of, if you ignore complexity, which is like a, a big part of the great man theory, you can sort of trace again, like Elvis to the Beatles with like maybe a stop or two in between. Uh, but then, you know, to Led Zeppelin, to like Pink Floyd or whatever. But like... You sort of when you get into like the 80s, it becomes harder to say, harder and harder to say who the next one is, because, again, it's just spreading out. And that's a natural thing that music does. But it sort of becomes harder to pick the person that's just like, this is the one that is the person. And again, I think also to come back to cultural changes, the 80s marked like MTV and it marked a lot of like sort of di changes in the way music was distributed. And so you can, it becomes again, in much the same way that sort of the, the the decline in aristocratic power led to sort of a lack of a clear successor to Beethoven. I think the changes in sort of music distribution in the 80s may have played a pretty significant role in sort of cutting off that clear path to the point where there is no clear successor to, I guess, Pink Floyd. I don't, I don't know who the last one would be. You, you yeah. know better than I do. Queen, maybe? Queen, yeah, Queen probably is. Probably the last one, I would say. That makes sense. That's a good call. Or like, yeah, yeah, it's it's hard. It's hard to say. But I think another contributing factor of that that also plays into this is as music grows, music fractures into more and more subgenres and tinier and tinier little niches where I'm sure in the 80s, there's people who will be like, well, in the 80s, Henry Rollins of Black Flag is is this auteur that's driving yeah. things. And then. At the same time, there will be people who are like, well, in the 80s, obviously, it's Michael Jackson or Madonna or or things like that. Each of those people are really talented in their fields and have done a lot. But they exist within a field. Yes, exactly. And I think I think kind of to circle back on something I touched on earlier, there are impacts of this that I think I think this framework can actively harm the way that you listen to music and can actively kind of shut you out from artists that you might otherwise like or just make you feel embittered about the musical world. Or if you're a musician, it can also put complete undue pressure on you. And I think it does put complete undue pressure on musicians to do kind of inhuman things. Yeah. Um, and and some people can do inhuman things and they're very talented, but it's also it's very okay to have if if you're if you're a musician and you really don't like writing lyrics but you want to sing lyrics it's 
perfectly fine to have a songwriter write songs yeah. for you. If you're a musician and you can't play 30 instruments at once, but you like big band, it's perfectly fine <laughs> to have a band. Yeah, I mean, traditional big bands were just one person playing 30 instruments at once. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> outside of the kind of the pressure it puts on musicians and outside of the the individual stress, I think it also often ties back to broader systems of oppression that are why jazz wasn't viewed as music yeah. until basically until Benny Goodman came along, who was a white auteur who yeah. quote unquote, like invented swing and rock and roll wasn't taken seriously until Elvis. And it's, it's part of a wider mechanism that often leads to people not believing musicians of a different race of of a different sexuality, different gender identity, it leads to a lot of people kind of suppressing musicians of these or forgetting musicians who are minorities or women or what have you, forgetting about the important contributions of people like Sister Rosetta Tharp yeah. or Scott Joplin or someone like that in favor of kind of turning to Elvis. And this is something I think you and I are like because of the job we do in a particular position to be sensitive about, not not to say that other people aren't, but I think sort of because, like for for instance, when I do my song analysis videos, I choose the song I'm doing via Patreon poll. Like I'll put up a poll and have people vote. Yeah. And what I've found is that like I've I've sort of made a conscious effort to try and include people who aren't cishet white men. And I've found that it's not that hard to get people to vote for artists of color in rock, in rock specifically. I want to be clear on that point. Like there's 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 a fair amount of those that you can get people to be like, oh yeah, like Jimi Hendrix, right? Like that's yes. it's not hard to be like, well, like, you know, but I've I've found it really hard to sort of get enough people to vote for women specifically. Yeah. And trying to find like like people, like women who played an important role in rock history and that's not to say that there aren't women who played an important role in rock history the thing is that off like 40 50 years later how many of them do we remember yes and they sort of often get swept under the rug because if you think of like who the rock gods are they're dudes they're all dudes like yeah like jimi hendrix freddie mercury like jimmy page all of the beatles stevie nicks is probably like the best example i can think of of a woman that someone might consider a yes yeah, stevie nicks Janis Joplin, maybe. See, I, I would think Janis Joplin. Like to me, Janis Joplin definitely fits. But like, I tried to put Janis Joplin on a Patreon poll. I put like "Peace in My Heart." Yeah, and no one was interested. It's just like, yeah, I, I was shocked. I, I thought that one was going to run away with it. It's just like no one. Everyone was like, nope, no, don't care about "Peace in My Heart." And it's like, why? It's so good. It's such a good song. Obviously, due to societal uh, pressures, there there were less women yeah. playing rock and roll. But that does not mean there were no women playing rock and roll at the time. There were women in the Liverpool scene when the Beatles and the Stones were uh, like, like before the British invasion came to America. There were a ton of women in the psychedelic rock scene. I mean, like Grace Slick of Jefferson yep. Airplane. In, in my mind, Surrealistic Pillow is probably kind of one of the definitive psychedelic rock albums ever. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In jazz, there's a couple. G generally, Billie Holiday and Ella yeah. Fitzgerald are, are remembered, but then there's there's a ton of and and there's a lot of great women who weren't singers as well. I feel like there's often a lot of kind of this goes to hierarchies within music uh, where it feels like a lot of the time women are relegated to certain roles and you don't tend to see women who are idolized as guitar gods or yeah. something like that, even though. I mean, St. Vincent, for my money, for sure, yeah. might be the best rock guitarist working right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I would not be surprised if that was true. But this is like, this is also sort of to sort of oscillate back to the 19th century, because, you know, I'm sort of flip-flopping between them. This is sort yeah. of a, a thing according to, like, I'm not a musicologist, but this is, according to my musicologist friends, this is sort of a big thing in musicology right now, too, is trying to sort of like figure out how to discuss women's contributions to music in the 19th century. And a lot of that has to do with, again, sort of decentering those sort of primary, like, like big dog roles, right? Like the, the composer and whatever, because like, yeah. if you look at the 19th century, like they had these salons that, kept, that popped up where like, you know, like 
fancy people would gather and just talk about music, listen to music. That's where a lot of like composers would meet. And by and large, those were often run by women. And they so they played yep. this huge role in sort of shaping the culture and shaping tastes. And that often gets swept under the rug because it's so much easier to tell the story of these genius composers who just came up with a brilliant idea on their own and had no help. This speaks back to kind of what we were talking about at the very beginning with the different things that go into making a sound or making a movement. I feel like the inclination for some people there might be to say, oh, but... They weren't playing the music. And first of all, we just don't know that. Oh, yeah. We, we, they, we, they were playing the music. Um, <laughs> yeah. But but then I think the other thing, too, is like if you look at New York in the 70s, did the whoever ran CBGBs, did it matter whether they were playing or not? Because, <laughs> I mean, when you've got when you've got CBGBs and you've got the Ramones and the Talking Heads and Patti Smith and stuff like that, and you are facilitating this yeah. this space. For the musicians to exist in, that is absolutely as important as being a producer or playing or, or playing in the band or writing a song or something like that. Because if you take CBGBs away, if you take away this common ground where these musicians congregated, where they saw other musicians, got influenced by them, that whole the whole punk and new wave scene in New York out of the in the in the late 70s does not happen without CBGBs. Yeah. I think that the fundamental the idea of a music scene is basically that is people coming together and collaborating. And that's, I think, another thing that like auteur theory can obscure is the power of collaboration, just like how much gets done because two different people or more than two people, like even three, who knows, but uh, like some amount of people sort of get together and they have different visions of what music can be. And they just play off each other. Like, this is a fundamental thing in jazz, right? Like, you have people listening to each other, responding to each other. Like, you can't just look at Louis Armstrong and be like, Louis Armstrong did all that, uh, all those records himself. No one else played a role in Louis Armstrong's records. Like, you probably know better than I do who did, but, you know. I think that's something that's really cool about jazz, too, is just because of the nature of how jazz works, you get just different pairings and you can get different versions of Miles Davis's quintet or different versions of or or I mean Miles Davis had different bands too and you get you get these mixes and matches and there is still there is still auteur theory in jazz a lot especially with Louis Armstrong or Louis Armstrong worth noting that's how yeah. uh Armstrong actually preferred it pronounced yeah Duke Ellington Bird I don't remember which one I said but sorry if I got it wrong there, yeah. Oh, no, yeah. No worries. I, I, I often get it wrong, and but it's something that I'm trying to remind Same. myself to be respectful to the man. But yeah, you, you do get auteur theory, but you also get, you get these cool things where it's like Coltrane played sax as part of the band on Kind of Blue, and it's like I feel like in rock and roll you don't often get like. I mean, I guess Eric Clapton played the solo on While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Yeah, but you don't often get like. I don't know, Led Zeppelin's hanging out and they're like, oh, here, let's have Clapton play guitar for an album and swap him out for Jimmy Page. And Jimmy Page can come back next album. <laughs> and I mean, the, the the extent to which you do have that is almost exclusively singers. Like we were talking about, this sort of like singers occupy this weird sort of special space within a lot of musical culture in a way that yeah. makes sense to me, but also isn't necessarily good. And I say this as a singer, right? Like that's my background. I'm not really doing it anymore, but that's that's what I trained to do. And so you you get this thing where it's, it's totally common to have like a, like a singer come in and sing a feature on your thing or sing like a duet, like especially in hip hop, but in, in like rock and stuff too, you'll, you'll pretty commonly see like this song featuring this art, this singer from another band, but like you don't see, again, like you were saying, you don't see like featuring this bassist. And that's sort of, again, to come back to like the, the sort of like, vocal roles like people like the singer and the lead guitarist get all this attention for what a song does but like the who would not have been the who without keith moon right they tried it yeah it exactly didn't work. like yeah. I'm not no disrespect to i forget the other dr the drummer's name but like keith moon was like so much of when you think of what you of the great who songs they're all songs keith moon played on and that's not necessarily the only part that makes that song great but like he has he had such a unique take on drums that's like and, 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 you know, Keith Moon, I think, is one of those ones that gets more credit just because of how good he and how unique he was. Yeah. But, like, if you look at someone like Ringo, like, Ringo, so I think sort of experiencing a bit of a, like, discourse renaissance 
Uh, but like, yeah, and it is well deserved. Well deserved is the thing. Like, there's Ringo and Meg White for for a long time. You have, you have this whole thing where people are like, oh, Ringo was like like a bad drummer who was just there to keep time, and then like like actual drummers start to look at it as like, no, what he was doing was really interesting. It just wasn't complicated, right? Like, it served the role yeah. of the song in a very important and structural way that is so easy to gloss over and be like, oh yeah, well like. John and Paul wrote this song, or maybe George wrote the song, but it's just like Ringo was just there going like, scats, boots, scats. And it's just like, whatever, that's, he was just there. It's fine. Don't worry about Ringo. And again, that, that part of that comes down to the fact that like, of the four Beatles, Ringo's the only one who didn't really write that many songs. Yeah. You know, the majority of them were McCartney Lennon, but like, you know, George was doing plenty of writing too, especially sort of later in their career. Uh, and like Ringo had a couple songs credited to him, although my understanding is some of those were written for him by other people actually, but he, he just wasn't really doing much songwriting. And so it's very easy to look at him and be like, well, he wasn't contributing. And like drummers, I think especially are very yeah. vulnerable drummers and bassists and uh, anyone sort of in the rhythm section in the background, like rhythm guitars, anyone who's not sort of out front who doesn't get solo parts. I think even like, uh, even in Led Zeppelin, which is a band with three huge personalities that I'm sure people would kind of like, like, like idolize and worship all the time. Jimmy Page, Robert Plant and John Bonham. You do not get Led Zeppelin without John no. Paul Jones. No. John Paul Jones does so no. much for Led Zeppelin and just kind of gets and, and I among among like Zeppelin fans, he's rightfully yeah. celebrated. But in the wider music discourse, because he's kind of hiding away in the back and because he also does things like another thing that a lot of people overlook with rock bands and it's funny when people are like oh well like beyonce or taylor swift i mean taylor swift writes most of yep. her stuff but have have co-writers or songwriters and stuff it's like you think the beatles wrote those those string arrangements <laughs> <laughs> like you you think in any piece any piece of kind of big orchestral symphonic rock they weren't writing they were not scoring the symphonies no. there and and with led zeppelin that's something that um john paul jones did a lot of he did a lot of the arrangements um and arrangement again is something that we don't really consider it very important in our idea of what a musical auteur should be but arrangement is everything so especially with like kind of bigger more grandiose stuff yeah like anything you hear that has a string section someone had to arrange that string section and yes it may have been one of the band members i don't know like depends on the song a lot of the time it's not because that's a very specialized skill set that some people are just very good at and it's so much easier to just hire one of those people yeah to sort of get back like the collaboration in general sort of one of my favorite albums of all time is Jackson Brown's debut album, which I'm going to call Saturate Before uh, Using and nerds are going to yell at me, but it's called Saturate Before <laughs> Using, deal with it. Um, but that features uh, Crosby and Stills on the background vocals. And it would be ridiculous to think that they had no influence on the sound of that album. Yeah. Because they were there and that was sort of that scene where there's just like people would just pop into each other's houses and talk about music and write songs together. And so it's Jackson Brown's album. He wrote the songs but he didn't write the songs in isolation. And so just having having those other people there is is easy to forget how important that is. I think we're kind of approaching the point where we should start wrapping it up. But I want to bring up one more example for what, who I think is a great example of what can happen when you kind of dissociate yourself from auteur theory is um, the Wu-Tang Clan are yeah. incredible because the Wu-Tang Clan swap members out there's kind of this extended circle of people that are in the wu-tang sphere and they have wu-tang clan albums that are amazing and bring all of their things together and then raekwon will do a solo album or odb will do a solo album and and those albums will be fantastic but you never once you never have i mean i guess maybe some people might say uh rizza is because he does the production yeah. but i i generally like I don't think people act as if there's an auteur behind the Wu-Tang. The Wu-Tang is a clan. They are, they are by definition, a collective. And I think that because, because they see themselves as that as well, yeah. it's, they, they've managed to create some really, really interesting, compelling, and some of the best hip-hop mu music ever um, without the same kind of 
I don't know, ego attachment that that exists in in a, in a, a lot of their contemporaries, really. I guess sort of like the, the, the last point that I would want to make on this is just that if you have like there, there's this sort of undue pressure we talked about on musicians to sort of be the be the genius, be the auteur. But there's also sort of this pressure to sound like the auteur, right? Because you sort of, if yes. you don't accept that you are that person, which takes a lot of ego to be like, I'm going to be the next giant, like big name in music, and I'm, I'm going to revolutionize the field. If you don't take that, which, you know, a lot of the people who do revolutionize the field wind up thinking that about themselves anyway, because it takes a lot of ego. But um, if if you don't sort of view yourself as being the next auteur, then you sort of have to view yourself as following in their footsteps and doing the things that they did. And there's a lot of pressure from the industry too. Like this isn't just in people's heads. This is like, it's so much easier to sell a record that sounds like records that sell. And so yeah. you you see a lot of like, like playing it safe and trying to get like, oh, who's the next person that sounds kind of like Ed Sheeran or whatever. And maybe like they have their little twist, but it's still basically Ed Sheeran. And like, then it becomes much harder to find the next great sound because the people who who may have been the person to do it, they they wind up being forced into this box where they they're playing like whoever the greats in their field are. Yeah, and and they sort of feel that pressure to sound like that and to be like that in a way that is harmful to music in general. Like we were talking about sort of the harm of sort of what happens when to the way you listen to music, but it also pretty significantly affects the music that you have available to listen to. I want to make clear to any aspiring musicians out there. I, what 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 Corey is saying, and and I I don't think we're saying that you should not try to sound like like artists that you love sometimes because how you discover your own voice is by imitating somebody else's voice and messing up, and where you mess up becomes <laughs> your voice. Oh, for sure. Yeah, if you make a mistake, do it again, and then it's on purpose. I completely agree with what you're saying, but I also just wanted to make sure people. Yeah. Because uh, I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of aspiring musicians that listen to us, and I think it is very valuable to it's valuable to look at the people that you idolize and the people that you might deify and use their influence on your sound. But I think all we're asking is and, and we're not asking to like we're not asking you to stop celebrating Beethoven or to I mean, I not am. love Jimi Hendrix. We're just asking to inspect a little yeah. and think a little bit about well, well, who else was around Jimi Hendrix that made these things happen? Who else was around Beethoven? What was going on in the world? How did the musical movements uh, around these artists, how did the people around them, how did the fans, how did their friends and family play into this? And, and I think that also just helps humanize artists yeah. a little bit and, and helps you remember that despite what Robert Plant says, they're not, rock stars aren't immortal gods. They're just people trying to make it in the world like you and I. <laughs> I'm not saying don't play Hendrix. I'm saying don't try to be Hendrix because if you're trying to be Hendrix, you, you're probably never going to be. Whereas if you sort of let yourself do what you want to do, which may be playing some Hendrix licks, which may be practicing Hendrix, which may be doing whatever, you're much more likely to be the next Hendrix because the next Hendrix isn't going to sound like Jimi Hendrix. Yes. Right? We already have Jimi Hendrix. So look, yeah, I'm definitely not saying don't, practice yeah. people who but yeah contextualize understand that these people exist within systems and just have fun that's i think have fun is a, is yeah. a great place to end it and have fun with your talking and thinking about music yeah. and be open that's a little off topic but i really if there's one thing that i want to hammer home we're still in the infancy of this podcast but i really want to hammer home to anyone listening that you should be open to more musics like it's so rewarding. Yeah. You'll get so much out of it. <laughs> I don't think that's actually off topic at all. I think that's sort of very relevant to the question of just like having having these musical idols. It's just like there's so much more rock out there than Jimi Hendrix and The Who. Yes. And there's so much more like metal out there than Black Sabbath and Iron Maiden. And that's not to say anything bad about any of those artists. They're all very good. But if you sort of step back from the idea that they are the gods of this field and no one will ever touch them you can find a lot of music that you might have missed otherwise. Yes. And you can make a lot of music you might have missed otherwise. And if you stop trying to hold musicians in other fields accountable to the, to the gods of your, to, to whatever your given musical god does, 
you'll be able to appreciate other musicians for their own strengths and and other people around music as well producers and and, and arrangers and things like that yeah thanks for listening if you had any thoughts on this and want to join in the conversation uh, just follow ghost note show on twitter and hit us up we'd we'd love to hear your guys thoughts on this yeah. and otherwise where can people find you Corey? uh mostly youtube.com slash 12 tone videos and twitter.com slash 12 tone videos i have basically if you want to talk to me hit me up on twitter at watch polyphonic or uh go watch my channel polyphonic um i've got i do videos on stuff wait what since when yeah actually no if if you're here i don't need to explain to you what i do 